Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent within the community. I'm your host, Tunde, and this week we'll welcome to the show Beatrice Nicholas, who is a British pianist, composer, and arranger, and a chamber musician who has performed around the UK, across Europe, and even Thailand. She started playing the piano at the age of four, and since then she's played at the likes of the Royal Festival Hall the Royal Opera House, London Coliseum. She's featured on BBC Radio 3, as well as being a solo artist. Uh, she's also a member of the Chinookay Chamber Ensemble, the Zetlin and Nicholas Duo, and enjoys collaboration with a variety of different artists. The composing work has also been showcased by the British Black Classical Foundation, who made her a featured composer for Black History Month. We hope you enjoy this. Here is Beatrice Nicholas and her musical journey. Okay, so thank you so much, Beatrice, for agreeing to do this podcast. I'm so excited. I know you are a busy woman, so uh, really, really do appreciate you finding some time just to speak with me. How are you today? Doing well, thanks, Tunday. Thank you for having me on. No problem at all. No problem at all. So when I do these uh, interviews with people, and we've had you know various different people on, people from the corporate world and you know the arts and so forth, Usually, when I when I go online and I do a bit of research, there there is quite a bit on online about them. But with you, there's obviously lots of your performances online, um, but it's not a great deal about you yourself. And um, <laughs> I was just wondering, <laughs> I was just wondering, is that is that deliberate? And and why why is that? I tend to focus on what I do, my product as a musician, rather. Um, my personal life so it probably is deliberate but you know I'm not afraid to share either so let's see how this goes and yeah I'm happy to answer any questions you have for me excellent excellent well I hope I hope this gives people a, a little peek behind uh, the the world of a, a performer so I think that would be really interesting so I guess you know my first question would be where did it all begin for you you know where, where, where did you grow up so I grew up in the East Midlands. I was born in Lincolnshire and um, we lived in Leicestershire and also Nottinghamshire. And um, we lived in a small village in the East Midlands. My parents were very keen. I did lots of extracurricular activities outside of school. Um, so that looked like sport. It looked like music lessons, art. They just encouraged us to really try stuff with children and then from there find our lanes and invest in things that we enjoyed, our passions, and hopefully what we might be in, and what we might end up doing in life. And so um, I was introduced to the piano by my parents at the age of four and one of five children. And one we could five. all play the piano. Yeah, <laughs> we all had a music lesson. And so that's where it began. And um, where do your parents uh, sort of hail from or their parents? Where, where does it all kind of emanate from? So there's a big history of Nottingham, actually, in our family. My parents met at Nottingham University, but they're originally from Ghana and Jamaica. Ghana and Jamaica. Okay, that's that, that's, cool. that's cool. Yeah. Um, so you started playing when you were four, and your parents sound really progressive. I mean, was it like a really sort <laughs> of, um, what did they actually do as, as careers for, the, you know, the two of them? Yeah, so they started out in public health yeah. and um, my mum went into just further after the civil health, civil service, always working in health. Um, my dad went into IT and they're both retired now, obviously. And they just loved their children and wanted to invest in them as much as possible. And I've, I, I think I've read or maybe heard you say that they, they both played as well. Is, is that right? Did they both play the piano? They can play the piano. They wouldn't describe themselves as musicians, um, but they can play a bit. My dad plays a bit of clarinet too. And they don't really play much anymore. Um, but I think they wanted to be able to help their children um, with music lessons and practice that teachers are setting. So they were more involved and playing more when I was a child. And um, I don't really see them play much now. 
And what kind of memories do you have as a, as a young kid? Um, you know, four, five, six, seven. Uh, <laughs> was it, was it a ha- happy childhood or was, really was it quite... happy? Yeah. I don't think it was until I was a student, actually, kind of 19, 20 years old, that I kind of became more aware that what I had wasn't necessarily typical or a given. Yeah, I was happy most of the time. Having four siblings means you're never lonely. <laughs> you kind of end up growing with friends, growing up with friends. Yeah. Um, we lived in a small village community. I went to the local village school. Yeah, even when I went to secondary school further afield, I had a lot of friends. And the wider family, especially my mum's family, they're very close to each other. Um, yeah, so there were lots of good relationships growing up. And I was a very happy child. And what kind of kid were you? You know, if if if, if I were to ask your parents or maybe <laughs> some of your friends back then, what, what kind of kid were you? I was someone who liked to take risks, someone who liked to be on stage. I loved performing in any way, whether it was drama. I loved drama so much. Um, or singing or playing the piano. I was very, always very creative. Obviously still am. I was always doing stuff like writing stories or writing scripts or composing music, or designing something to wear. There's a huge creative element in me. Um, and I had lots of friends, but I was also an introvert. So I liked hanging out with people, but then I kind of would disappear after a while and kind of zone out, regain creative energy, and then kind of emerge and hang out with everybody again. Okay, and you, you mentioned earlier that you kind of started playing the piano. I think you, you said around about the age of four. Hmm, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do you have firm recollections of, of that time when you started playing? And, and what was that feeling when you were playing around that age? Yeah. So, I mean, I love playing the piano now. But interestingly enough, even though I always loved music, I actually didn't enjoy playing the piano when I was four years old. Um, I think it was just because, you know, four-year-olds, they don't like to sit still. <laughs> yeah. They don't, well, I didn't really like to practice. I liked I liked playing, but I didn't like the discipline that came with it. And really, if you're going to conquer a classical instrument or any instrument that does have to be, there is a discipline that comes with it, even though there's a lot of pleasure and passion too. I found that hard. And mum and dad were, were, you know, they were very consistent with me practicing every day for a certain amount of time, not weekends. But I think for some parents now that sounds a little bit, uh, intense but actually I'm really grateful to them because it's a complex instrument and it doesn't it doesn't just happen it doesn't come by itself you get back what you put in so you know as a four-year-old I just wanted to be playing in the garden or climbing up the tree and obviously I did that um but I would have to do my 20 minutes a day as well um where I was four and, between four and five I didn't really like that much um but my parents made a deal with me and they said when you get to grade five you can give up, um, which is a great deal. It's a clever deal because once someone gets to grade five, they're actually quite proficient. And so I worked really hard to get to grade five, by which point I did not want to give up. In fact, before grade five, I did not want to give up. Um, and obviously, playing the piano fell into my love of performing, and I realised, I remember my first concert when I was six. Wow. Um, and I remember, and my sister was in, um, one of my sisters was in the same concert. She was four, actually, and we did the same concert together. And I remember, even though I didn't like practicing, I remember love, loving performing so much. And I think that kind of kept me going as well, that aspect. And then, you know, grade five, I could play. I think I'm quite an independent creative. I mean, I'm a, you know, a team player too and everything. But I like to be able to explore and be creative by myself as well. By the time I was grade five, I was able to explore more on the piano by myself. So I started to really love it. And then um, later on, kind of when I was older, much older, 13 or something, and I was in secondary school, um, I got to play with other people. And that was, was really great and um, became a really good way to meet people and make friends. And I started to understand classical music a lot more because it's not, it's not as if our culture um, – is steeped in classical music in the sense that classical music is something from a bygone era <laughs> that we brought with us into our culture. But it's not our current day. And so 
a lot of children may connect with certain pieces of classical music, but they won't connect with the whole thing as a culture immediately. It's something that you grow into and you start to understand more and more. So yeah, you just mentioned there the fact that you were, you know, four, five, six, and that your sister was a, of a similar age. Were you both kind of child prodigies? You know, were you quite sort of, you know, famous in the local area, in, in the local press? I mean, h- how was it for you back then? So I think I should be very clear that we, we weren't proud of child prodigies. Um, I would say that we are both, no, more of us, is actually five of us, but chat reminds me, I'd say we were both innately musical. We had an innate musical gift, but I wouldn't say that made us prodigies. Um, prodigies have a virtuosic element that is almost unexplainable. Um, I'd say you could have explained us as two innately musical gifted children who were advanced for their age, but not prodigies. Um, so we were doing, we were ahead of our age, I'd say, in that sense, but that's all it was. Um, Primary school wasn't such a big deal. I mean, we were doing a lot better at music than, you know, our friends at primary school, that's for sure. But I think as children, we were also quite unaware, as children are. I think we became more aware that we were good at something when we went to secondary school. But we also started to encounter other people who were good at music in secondary school too, so it was really fun. And were, were you good at other subjects as well? Or was it just kind of music that really stood out for you? No, I mean, we all all went to university. So we're all academic, even though we may not have chosen academic pathways. Um, all five of us. And the thing is about classical music, it feeds into everything else we do at school because you're exercising both the left and right, right-hand side of the brain when you're playing the piano. Um, you're being creative helping you with math instinct, it's helping you with discipline, it's helping you with analysis, problem solving. Um, so a lot of children who are advanced in classical music are often good at a lot of other school subjects as well. Yeah, oh, that's, that, that's so interesting. I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit now, but I know that your siblings are sort of all high achievers. So what, what would you put it down to? I mean, where did this sort of high achieving impetus come from? You know, is it both of your parents? Was one particularly more inspirational than the other? Or was it, you know, good teachers at school? What would you put it down to? Um, my parents. Yeah. Both of them. And not yeah. just them, but my grandmother, my aunts, my uncles, my family. So my parents invested so much of us, so much of themselves into us and our family when we were children uh, with just doing whatever they could to try and help us pursue our passions. But they were also uh, quite uncompromising about us doing homework and being um, disciplined at school. And I had talent, um, things like English and music and history but I also just loved to be the class clown at school and so even though I had maybe talents in some subjects sometimes I'd come home from school with really bad reports and in that family that was not okay <laughs> you know <laughs> um I'd have to sit down and talk to my dad about it <laughs> it just wouldn't get swept under the carpet and that talk would be ongoing until those reports changed and they did change they did change um when I decided that, okay, I have to apply myself because between school and my parents, there wasn't going to be room for not investing in my education. Um, so that, that was a good thing. And, you know, it wasn't intense or anything. It was just you have to achieve your potential in school. Um, and that's one thing. The other thing I mentioned already about them investing so much in their passions. That is constant. So I felt really loved as a child. Um, by my family, that obviously grows confidence and self-confidence. Um, also grows kind of faith in the abilities of other people. So I love um, mental relationships, helping other people to spot the potential in themselves. And I, I find it very easy to do that. And I think it's because of the love that's been invested in me, the self-confidence I have. Um, I'm very able to 
tease or want to tease the best out of others. Um, and also I've, you know, grew up in a Christian household and so just this belief that I still have that God loves me and is for me obviously really impacts my self-confidence too. Okay, great, great to hear. And I also read somewhere that you, um, I mean, you're a composer and I think that really started taking off when you were around about the age of 14, if, I, if, I, um, if I'm correct. You know, how did the music, the passion for music, how did that all develop in your, in your secondary school up until the age of when you went to the Royal Academy of Music? I mean, was it, even back then, was it a, did you know that you were going to make music a career for you or was it all always a pipe dream or what was your thinking back then, would you say? I think I always knew that I'd be a musician. I was always exploring other things as well. So I'm ne- I've never been someone who didn't know what I wanted to do up until the age of like mid-twenties. I've always been exploring other things as well. Um, like what? Writing, um, languages. Yeah, I just was never quite closed off. I took some science A-levels to kind of explore that too. But somehow I knew that I would be a musician. But I, I do have this kind of explore, explorative aspect to my personality as well. So I kind of never stayed in a really narrow lane. I guess, until much later. <laughs> um, but yeah, secondary school well, played a big role, actually, in the process of becoming a, mu- a musician. Um, huge role. So I went to two secondary schools. The first one was an all-girls grammar school in Lincolnshire, called Stephen and Grant. Stephen and Grantham Girls School, KGGS. And the music teachers there and the headmistress was so supportive of all the girls, really. But um, in the music department, the music department was really strong when I was there. And they were so supportive of our music. And there were actually quite a few girls in that school when I was there who were brilliant musicians, really good composers, really good string players, um, really good Baroque recorder players. You know, all kinds of stuff was going on. And um, they were just really encouraged there was also a corresponding boys grammar school which obviously I didn't go to because I was a girl <laughs> but I remember, <laughs> I remember having jazz piano lessons actually with the head of music in the boys school because we didn't have it at the girls school the jazz element but they had a big jazz department and yeah again he was just a great man and I don't really play jazz now but I use the sound um in some of my compositions you know so it's kind of impacted me as well um, and then the second secondary school I went to was um, Thomas Mills High School in Framingham, Suffolk, uh, which is, uh, is a very dear place to me. And again, I mean, it's funny, you know, it's a very, I wouldn't say it's small in size, but it's the town and the community it's in is a small kind of rural town. But it's had so many musicians that have gone through that school. Ed Sheeran, um, Polly Gibbons, who's won the BBC jazz awards numerous times jess quinn who's in Keene, the band i mean lo- loads of them have been to that school and it's because it just has a really really supportive head of music who's still there richard hanley like any musician who's been to that school will just say the best things about richard hanley everyone loved him so supportive and for a comprehensive school that was in a rural a rural town i think he did above and beyond of what he could do to support us and I was you know I was having a lot of extra help outside of school I was going from the age of 15 I was going to um the Royal College of Music junior department on Saturdays um and I was getting my tuition there um so I wasn't getting it at school um but I was being very supported at my everyday school you know and so I think the whole thing of then going off to the Royal Academy of Music was really a combination of the specialist music lessons I was getting at the Royal College of Music Dean Department and the support I was getting from my school community. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you know, if you could take us back to the day, the time where you were maybe doing the A-levels and um, 
making the application to get into the Royal Academy of Music. I mean, I just as an aside, I used to work at the uh, the Royal Albert Hall, just in the box office, and I I, I know that there were, there were quite a few people working in the box office that used to go to that particular school, and they always used to tell us how competitive it was uh, there. So, how difficult is it to get into that school? Um, <laughs> at the time, I remember thinking it was pretty difficult. But then afterwards, I went to Germany, which was even harder. <laughs> so right, I kind okay. of forgot <laughs> how much work I did to get in there in the first place. I had, at the Royal College of Music, junior department, I had a teacher who I'm still friends with now, Danielle Salomon, who did loads and loads and loads of work to help me to get into music college. It isn't easy. It is selective. And you are in a pool of people from all around the world. You know, there was only one other British person in my year for piano when I was there. That's not uncommon because they're selecting people from around the world. But I just think, again, I was probably when I was 17, because I'm born in August, so I'm one of the younger ones for the academic year when I was 17 I think I was pretty much unaware you know I was just kind of focused on doing a really good audition and and the audition wasn't all that I was doing at the time I was also doing like competitions and concerts and I was just focused on trying to play well for everything if you know what I mean um I had this teacher Danielle Salomon who paired me really 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 well so I was slightly unaware I was by that point very hard working because I really cared about the music and I've prepared, prepared really well for my teacher. So by, by this time, I mean, if you can think back, I mean, how many hours a day do you think you were you were playing then, you know, kind of um, practising? Yeah, I was pretty frustrated because I wanted to practise a lot, but I couldn't because I had to go to school. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I was really frustrated. But I used to, in the summer and Easter holidays, not for the whole summer, but I think for a week, I used to go to this music course for children called Procorder. Um, another chain music course and chain music and you know also hanging out being kids was kind of all you did and I used to love those times I just you kind know, of have six hours a day but it wouldn't be by myself it would be you know with a group of focusing on different scores and getting ready for, for performance at the end of the week and I just feel like I had scratched an itch that I was finally able to do the work that I wanted to do because I didn't have school interfering <laughs> with it in the middle of the day. Um, but that's why I went to music college, because I was able to finally do and have the time I needed to do what I wanted to do. But I know people who went to specialist music boarding schools, like Cheatham's or Purcell or whatever, where they had ample of time, I mean, to practice or compose or whatever. Um, legally, you still had to do academic school because I'm under 18 but it would have been slim lines for them but growing up in that environment I mean most of them went to music college but some of them you know it was too much they wanted to have a broader education so they would leave not you know a couple of them would leave at sixth form to go to a more academic school and, and not go to music college and go off to university and study something else um so that just means for those people I know, their passions are going in a different direction, you know. And in the end, you make sacrifices for what you love and what your passion is, you know. So was, was it a, a pleasant experience at the uh, the Royal Academy? I mean, um, yeah. it was. Because I, I, I mentioned that because um, I can't remember the name of the film now, but it's a, it's a jazz film about a drummer. And it came out, I think it came out about 10 years ago. Oh, it's an American film. Do you, have, yeah, I'm yeah, sure I know the one it. you mean. I haven't seen it, but I do know the way you mean it. They paint that environment to be so cutthroat, you know, so like, you know, there's no soul in the school. The teacher that the guy had was an absolute just authoritarian, you know, no joy. And obviously, it's, you know, it's a film. They need to make it dramatic. But was was there <laughs> was there any kind of reality in that for, for you in, and, and where you went to at the Royal Academy? For me, going to the academy was like finding my freedom. I was finally <laughs> able <laughs> to, to study music and not have to do like chemistry and all these other bits and bobs <laughs> without getting in the way. Um, well, I actually did quite like chemistry, actually. 
and with all these people that were like-minded but from different countries so like-minded but different getting to perform all the time I mean hang out in London with your friends after you literally come from the first school I mean it was great (laughs) it was great so yeah, it sounds like really, uh, really exciting, you know, getting to live in London, as you say, friends from all over the world. I mean, yeah. what, what, what more could you ask for? What more could you ask for? Great. And then I, I know you mentioned earlier that reasonably uh, difficult to get into the Royal Academy, but you said it was even more difficult to get into this school in uh, Germany. So what, what's the process for applying for this school in Germany and um, ha- how kind of challenging was it for you to, to actually get in? Yeah. So I did my postgrad there. This is the Hans Eisler Academy of Music in Berlin. Great place. So when I did my undergrad at the Royal Academy, I was still, you know, a teenager, slightly unaware. I had a teacher helping me out, (laughs) you know, preparing me. When I did my postgrad, kind of so much more aware of what's going on because you're an adult. But they had a much, much larger number of pianists from around the world applying. And they would take, I think in my year group, they took three pianists that year. There's some years they didn't take any. I mean, they don't feel obliged to take anybody if they don't want anybody. Um, I think the academy will always have a quota within their year group. This place in Germany, if they don't, it's anyone they don't like, you know. How many people do you think apply in any one year? I mean, if they're only taking three at best. When I did it, it was 300 applicants to pick three people. Yeah, that's, that's like 1%. I mean, it's 1%. Yeah, 1%. That's competitive. You do two auditions and <laughs> you find out if you got through the first one because they hang the names on the wall, you know. You have to go and look and if your name's not there, that's, you know, <laughs> do you have to deal with that? <laughs> if it is, it's for you, you know. It might, be, it might feel hard to get into some of these places. It did for me. I mean, some of my contemporaries are amazing and, they may, be, may have to breathe through. They may have a completely different take on it, you know. But in any case, when you do go to these places, you improve and you grow. And what was hard yesterday becomes normal the next day. And then next day it becomes easy because that audition is just the first stage. And, you're, you know, you're not there to stay at a first stage level. You're there to, to, to um, develop and grow. So was that as as great an experience for you as a student as the Royal Academy or was it was it different in some ways? Yeah, I love it um, in yeah. Germany. So when I auditioned for the Royal Academy, I was 17. Um, so I was still a teenager. I'd say still a little bit unaware. Um, when I went to Berlin to the Hans Eisler Academy of Music, I was a postgrad. So I was an adult and I was very aware. But it did feel really competitive and statistically it was but with any of these places when you audition it can feel like you know a bit of a narrow squeeze like a real push but you never stay at that stage once you get in because you grow and you improve and you develop and so that initial stage that may have felt like a challenge when I first began after a year isn't a challenge because you're so much better and um, that standard was your yesterday not your current so you you never stay at that level that was a push when you began you, you grow I mean even just those stats I mean you know the fact that only one percent of people get through in a good year because you said that some years they don't take on any pianists that that sounds like a lot of pressure but I mean it seems to be the I mean maybe Maybe you're suggesting that maybe you weren't aware at that time or maybe it wasn't pressure for you. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't adult. I, I did feel the pressure. And I, I, I mean, not pressure myself, you know, because I was taking private lessons with one of the professors there so that I could prepare really well for the audition. Whilst not living in Germany, whilst, whilst living in Suffolk, so I'd fly over to Berlin once every two weeks for one day, you know, getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning to get to Stansted Airport, getting back at midnight for this lesson. Um, often it was in the winter, and Berlin in the winter is freezing. But <laughs> you're kind of hanging out at a cafe, staying warm before you go to your lesson because you got there, you know, two hours early or whatever. 
um, and working at the same time to support myself to do this. And so you're investing a lot in an outcome that you don't have full control over. And that's pressure on me from me, you know. And then I remember just talking to some, you know, after you get into school and talking to some, some friends who also take condition. And they, you know, just more clued up than me. I kind of just wanted to go to that school. And they wanted to study in Germany. So they had done the normal thing of applying to lots of really good different schools in Germany to see which ones accept them and then make a choice. Um, I'd probably put more pressure on myself by only applying to one place. <laughs> but I can be a bit, my sister says, when I get a bee in, like a bee in my bonnet about something, like that's it, I'm kind of totally focused on that thing, um, which is helpful to kind of push you over the finish line, but probably not wise <laughs> in backup choices. Well, it worked for you, clearly. It worked for you, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, maybe in hindsight, I do things differently, but... <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So literally one in one in a hundred chance of making it into the school, and that was the only school you applied and you got in. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> so um once once you finished was it a year a, a year's uh postgraduate course or two years? It was three years. It was a three, three year years. course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which is much longer than we have in the UK. But I actually ended up staying uh for longer than that, actually. And it was great living in Berlin. I mean, it's such an amazing city. And classical music there is incredible. Right. So you, you, you leave the school and then how how did your career take off from there? I mean, what was your what was your first paid gig? Do you remember wh- where it was and um, how happy was it when you got that first paid gig after leaving? So I was doing paid concerts before I went to the Royal Academy of Music. Ah, yeah, so it. I was doing them before as a child or a teenager, really. And that's not uncommon. I think in the arts, performing isn't something that you wait to do once you have a diploma or a degree or a qualification. Um, it's a game of it. It's not a game, but it's a thing of experience. You have to have talent and skill and all that. But you turn into those experience and say so you you start that experience, you know, as soon as you can. But like acting, a lot of actors they were child actors already before they um, became adult actors. You know, they already been on the screen or what, or they already had been paid for certain things. Um, and it's the same with music, or can be the same with music. But you just, you just yeah, you, you start. And, it, and in some ways. If you want to go to a conservatoire, we know when they read your personal statement or whatever it is, you have to write about yourself. They're expecting to see experience as well. Yeah, they're expecting to see that you've already had some paid work, that you've already done a certain amount of concerts, you've already tried to um, certain amount of competitions and stuff. So that by the time you graduate, you're just expanding that experience. And then once you left, I mean, how did your career? Um, not take off, but continue after after leaving the uh, schooling in Germany. Yeah, I'd say I slowly. I tried different things. Yeah, I tried different things. So I did quite a lot of work in education. Um, for hmm, can't remember quite, but I mean maybe three or four years, working as a part time um, music director for schools. Um, I was always doing part-time because I was trying to like balance it with console work and practicing as well. But yeah, doing that, I am very good at children, but also doing that helped me um, just have a bit of financial stability, financial stability in London while you're also trying to work out this whole freelance thing as well. And then later, um, I started playing for the Mobile School, English National Ballet, um, part-time was a freelancer and that was that has been I still play for them has been a great way of having a portion of your work that's totally regular about you being having your hands in the piano keys um but also being released and having a lot of time to do concerts to do ensemble work to travel to do everything else that I need to do as a pianist and as a composer um that's been really really good and I I think the Royal Bio School particularly has been very flexible and helpful with trying to understand the nature of what I do as a, as a pianist and composer in my career and 
trying to, yeah, just kind of accommodate and welcome that. That's been really good too. So I've been able to kind of grow things in a kind of stable, steady way. Yeah. And looking back, I mean, I know you're getting sort of paid gigs throughout your career, but is there one point which you think really ignited your your career in recent years? Is there one gig or is there one performance you can now look back on and, and say, okay, it was that point where my career really took off? Um, I'd say two things. And these two things are actually more recent. I would say the use of social media. So as a musician, I have been able to connect with such a larger group of people than I would have without social media. Because if you're meeting people face-to-face, there's only so much time <laughs> you have and so opportunity to meet people face-to-face with social media. You can meet so many people online, not in the sense of meet, but people can connect with your music so much more. So sometimes people are a bit sceptical about social media. They say, yeah, but does it really get you work? Yes, it does. If you're, you know, been headhunted by programmers through Instagram, through LinkedIn, some regular concerts I do every year have happened because of someone looking at my LinkedIn and listening and watching one of my concert videos, you know. And that's happened many times through social media. So I think social media has been a big thing. Also, to create audiences and great audiences. Another big thing has actually been Tineke Foundation. I don't, you've probably heard of them, but Tineke Foundation are. And they basically champion diversity in classical music. And Chichi, the director there, who is just, not just director, the founder, um, amazing woman, incredible musician as well. And I just think, you know, I've played with her a lot now in um, the Tineke Chamber Ensemble. And just kind of hanging out with her. I mean, she is, she is like a fireball, you know, and she's someone who will never give up. And doesn't doesn't really believe in the word no. Like if she's got a vision for something, she will implement it. Doesn't matter what it takes. I think hanging around someone like that has just also just really increased my own confidence and my own sense of not giving up and believing that things are possible. And you know, and you know, scaling up, always scaling up. And I just think also personally, like she's been hugely encouraging towards me as a musician. Like you know, I felt that she really believes in who I am as a musician, which is really affirming from another, well, from a musician that's kind of played with every conductor that there is on every stage, you know. That's been really great too. I think, so yeah, you asked me about various things that helped my career. I'd say those, those two things really have. The other nice thing about Junike in they champion diversity in classical music, well, I have never had an experience before I played with them of meeting so many musicians, classical musicians on stage playing together from ethnic minorities. It was just an extraordinary experience, you know, to have a whole orchestra that looks like this. And I have not experienced that anywhere. I think the fortune, like every now and then I might bump into somebody, you know, who is an opera singer of Jamaican descent or is a Nigerian pianist or whatever. but having a whole orchestra on stage with people from all these different backgrounds, all these different skin tones and different cultures on our biggest stages, like the problems in the other hall, all this stuff, it's just absolutely amazing. And I think audiences love it too because audiences haven't seen it. It just, to be part of their foundation feels, it has always felt quite colossal. And yeah, very, very powerful. Yeah, I mean, that, that is absolutely a, a topic I wanted to ask you about. You know, I'm aware that sort of classical music is, um, I only discovered recently that its roots in the early in Christian church. And I know it's got some influences as well from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. But, you know, in 2023, how inclusive is the classical music scene? You know, h- how comfortable do you feel as a black woman in the scene at the moment? You know, is it, is it a true meritocracy, would you say? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a question that probably has different tangents to the, to the answer. Yeah. 
so I think that there has been moments that have been pivotal, pivotal in bringing change in the last five years. Things like the murder of Floyd in um, America, the Black Lives Matter movement. These things have kind of been a driving force in us seeing more representation in classical music, also lots of different fields. And then they've got foundations like Jenna Gay who were championing and kind of pushing for that 15 years ago, so, you know, before some of those pivotal moments. But now, with those pivotal moments happening as well, um, have a much larger voice in this. So there is a lot of change going on. But there have also been things that have been standing still as well. Um, now, that shouldn't surprise us because if there are things that aren't changing, that's why there are movements that are pushing and championing change because if there weren't things that are resistant to that, there would be no need for foundations and movements to be making that push. And okay, you know, sometimes I've been playing with them and I find that the responses can be so, to it can be so extreme. So, you know, you have a concert hall, the platform is full of excellent musicians of all kinds of different colours and hues and cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, and you have audiences that love that. But sometimes you also have newspaper columns that hate it, you know? And so you get this really extreme or polarised, sometimes polarised response. Or um, I noticed in our Tinegay concerts, our audiences look different. Like we attract a lot of people into the concert hall who are from different backgrounds who wouldn't normally come. It's great. And some people really welcome this, that when we do concerts, our audience that comes to the South Bank or Wigmore Hall or King's Place or wherever we're playing, it looks different, you know. Some people feel a bit uncomfortable with it because they're not used to that in that space. I find the overwhelming response is one of celebration and positivity. But I think I've become more aware, or I've become more aware of the, that responses can be different since I started playing in Trinidad. Because I think me as a black woman goes on stage for myself and plays some solo piano. That's a very different challenge to an orchestra with people going on stage together and playing. In what way would you say? Well, you just have, instead of one person, you have 50. Okay, right. You know, um, and they're also championing music by composers who were black, who wrote incredible symphonies and stuff, who some people have never heard of. Not some people, but a lot of people have never heard of because they weren't championed in their day and they're, they're long gone and dead now, you know. And I'm trying to bring, I'm not trying to show people how amazing some of this music is. But the response, I think, is overwhelmingly encouraging and positive and celebrating. But there are voices that emerge that are, that are not so. But there is a reason that there, are, there is a movement for change because it's needed. Yeah. Yeah, I read some of your, again, I'm not sure if it was a video or maybe it was a, an article, but you were saying um, that in order for classical music to remain relevant, you know, you, you kind of almost need to repackage it to, so that different audiences can sort of engage with it. And I know you've done sort of collabor collaborations outside of the scene. You know, I think there was one with a, um, an electronic artist. What other musical genres are you do you take an interest in? And uh, which other genres would you like to have collaborations in as, as well moving forward? Mm. So I would love to, okay, so that's me answering your last question first. I have a dream of mixing some Chopin etudes, so kind of like really fast romantic kind of music with um, some hip hop beats or some oh, breakers yeah. beats. Yeah, I like that. It's not just like I really want to do that. <laughs> I have been approaching. <laughs> couple of DJs and, and hip-hop artists like I really want to do, do you want to do that 
um, so far, I feel like it hasn't been picked up with massive enthusiasm, but I just really <laughs> believe this is going to be, you know, when someone says yes, I'm ready. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Basically, oh yeah, just like, I'd love to do that. I'd love to take it further by just getting a grand piano into a club and doing some like live club nights where you've got some just great beats going on with, you know, with kind of fast and furious classical music on the top. So people can like, silently groove to the piano music <laughs> it's actually got something to groove to but at the same time subconsciously sort of the melodies and stuff are going into the person's brain while they're having a great night and um, i would love to do i'd love to do that yeah so you mentioned electronic music that was really fun that was with an artist called lula york who is great she does loads of stuff with modular synthesis and we did, we did like a collaboration together where we kind of fused um, some Sati music. Everyone knows this piece called Genopedi by Eric Sati. We don't know the title, but they'll recognize it or recognize the actual melody. Um, so we fused that with electronic music. That was really cool. And we did that live in Suffolk, I think, at the end of the pandemic, an outdoor concert. That was really good. I've had some time to do more stuff with electronic music. Just need to watch that space. So, I mean, I'm a composer, so I'm just interested in music in general, you know. It just so happens that I'm classically trained and that's kind of where my heart has a bias towards. But I'm not closed off. At, uh, no, 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 not at all, you know. At the moment, I'm, so we're just going back to classical, but there is, it does connect with the questions. At the moment, I am getting ready for a couple of concerts actually and giving master classes on music from the black Chicago Renaissance. Did you know there's a Chicago Renaissance? The black, most people don't, but this is basically a creative movement that came out of Chicago in the 1930s and 40s in what you know people call the black belt, so the black community in Chicago. And it was really powerful and the musicians of that day wrote incredible music. Some of the best actually were actually female. And it was such a powerful movement. That movement actually impacted the 1960s American Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, so I'm going to be playing some music from the black female composers from that movement this summer and learning their music and looking at their schools. It's just fascinating to me because complete fusion of different musical genres. So it's classical, you know, it's got all this kind of classical Western Rachmaninoff type of influence in the sense of piano technique um, and its virtuoso, but they'll base it on things from Negro spirituals and they'll fuse it with jazz chords and there'll be like some real kind of percussive stuff going on or homage to kind of African rhythms. And it's amazing. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to performing that in the console with all this kind of fusion of different musical genres. I mean, in case people didn't know, I mean, you, you've performed in some of the world's, you know, most uh, glamorous venues, you know, the Royal Festival Hall, the Royal Opera House. Yeah, some, not all of them, some of them. <laughs> I mean, th- those are just the ones in London. I mean, you know, you've, you travel sort of internationally as well, which sounds really glamorous, but I'm sure you've had challenging moments in your career. I mean, what's been the most challenging points that you've had to deal with and h- how did you overcome it? I think, you know, usually the most challenging thing to do with is yourself. <laughs> you know, I think my lowest point is where I haven't lived up to my own expectation. I remember there was a concert that was really, really, really important to me. And I worked so hard. I really wanted to make a statement, actually, to the programmers who were doing this concert. I worked so hard. And... Something happened to me that just had never happened before. Like, I had this huge memory lapse on stage. Like, it was like oh, I just wow. could not find my mind. Couldn't find it. Like, obviously kept playing, but I'm not sure how much it was going to make, was really making sense. And until I found my way back in, and I was just nervous for the whole concert once I found my way back in. I, I didn't understand why I was so well prepared. Things had gone so well. People had heard the dress rehearsal and said, oh, this is really good. And then just suddenly, wham, it was like having amnesia on stage, which is kind of a bit like everyone's worst dream of, I don't know, being naked on stage and everyone can see them. It kind of feels like that. I found that really hard to bounce back from. 
but I couldn't understand what had happened. I was like, if I can't understand what, what happened, does that mean it could happen again? And she, my mum had to kind of speak to her on the phone, or she did, she was pretty sweet. She said, I'm going to send you a link. And she sent me a link of all the famous people in theatre who had forgotten their scripts, you know, in major productions. Uh, as a way of saying... Judy Dench is one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all love her, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> and because that's a way of saying, you're not the first person this has happened to. Uh, you've got to get okay. out, you know, you've got to, got, to, got to get up. Part of the job. Yeah, I mean, you don't want something like that to become <laughs> pattern in your job. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, people are people and many people have experienced a freak moment. But, you know, wham, bam, I'm not sure why that happened. But, the most important thing is to get back up again and to do even better. So that's what you do. But yeah, dealing with yourself, dealing with yourself when things don't go according to plan or dealing with yourself when you, you have to travel and you're really tired, you know, and now you have, it, maybe it costs you so much in energy just to get to that place before you play with the preparation, with the flights, you know, with not maybe not sleeping well or whatever. And now you're exhausted, but you haven't begun yet to go back to the stage. Now you have to play. You know, you everything you've invested in, you now have to pull out the back when you've got really low energy levels. Or I think the more I think about this question, the more it has to be dealing with yourself. Because even when you have to deal with difficult relationships around you or whatever, you can't control other people. You can only control your own response. So again, that's dealing with yourself. And I think... When you practice, you have control over everything. You know, you're fixing stuff. You have your own instrument. You know how it goes. There's no one in the room. There's there's no newspaper critic. <laughs> there's no one scary in the audience. You know, you have it good. But once you take that out into the public space, the control diminishes, especially for pianists. Like you don't take your piano from home with you. You have to you have to play an instrument you've probably never played on before, unless you've played that venue before. There's little things that you don't have control over. In some ways, as a classical artist, you have to be incredibly sensitive in a sense of creativity, but totally iron-willed in not letting anything get to you at the same time. If it doesn't matter what's happening, you have to give a really good performance. Yeah, I mean, I guess from the outside looking in, you know, the fact that you're travelling so many different countries, up and down the country as well in, in the UK, it can seem like it's a really glamorous life to live. But obviously you've just talked about there the fact that, you know, you're going to some of these places and you're turning up tired, you know, lack of sleep. And then you, as you've just said, you have to have to perform on the night. So that's not, that's not easy. Yeah. A lot of it is willpower and discipline. Um, I mean, obviously you do, sometimes you get to concerts where you are so well looked after, you know, and they insist on you being there the day before just so you can chill. <laughs> you know, you do, that, that can happen. It's interesting. Some of the most important concerts have been ones where you were asked last minute because someone got COVID or someone got ill, you know. And I've had situations where, especially when someone got COVID, now I've told, I think I had to go to Paris and be on the Eurostar at 7 a.m., which meant getting up for 5 a.m. You have to, you know, you have to get there a bit early and everything. And I was told about this concert 2 p.m. the day before. But I was already working on a different project. And so the music was being careered to my house, but I couldn't get home because I had to still, you know, still be engaged in another, another job. I didn't get home till 8 p.m. But I had between 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. the next day to look at the score. The score was so thick. <laughs> Like Lord of the Rings or something. <laughs> it was just black and ink. Yeah. It was, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I had to learn a three-minute piece. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot going on. And I remember doing everything I could until I was like, I have to get at least two hours sleep. And then we'll just see what happens when I get to France. I can only do what is humanly possible. I just have to trust God for the next step. That's unless you know where I come. And sometimes, some things we do, it, it seems like it's near impossible. You just have to do all you can for that day and then just have faith the next day. And then it gets, uh, you know, I've done some recordings where um, 
everything should be working really smooth, but you've got the best people in the room and everything. And something just kicks the tech or something happens, you know, and you book the studio, there should be loads of time, but you end up, everyone's like fighting so hard to make that recording. And then you get every, all the tracks done with just like 30 seconds to go, you know, when you thought you'd have an hour, but hours time left over, like things happen that you can't control. And you just have to put everything you have into that moment. And how was, how was that show? Really good. It was really, it was one of those things where when I got to France, it had two days as an ensemble to, to work with ensemble. It took until like maybe two hours before we went on stage for me to be convinced I was going to be okay. Because with last minute things, it's like you need every minute to make it work. And so sometimes it's just a matter of, Today wasn't what I imagined, but I did everything I could and I've got tomorrow. And at some point this will this will click. Wow. Yeah. I mean as 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 uh, audience members, you know, you, you pay your money, you go into the venue, you're not aware of what's going on, you're not aware of how difficult that that actor or that musician, how much of a difficult day they've had or lack of preparation. It's just uh completely oblivious to those kind of things. Yeah. Of course you should be, isn't as a paying audience member. you you were there. You come from your job where people are not aware of what you had to do to pull things together and seal cracks so they have a smooth experience. And so you now have the right to go somewhere else and pay money to take your mind off that, (laughs) you know, and not be aware and feel like you're connecting with performers who are seemingly effortless. (laughs) Um, You know, and... And that's the way it works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've I've kept you for a bit longer than I uh, than than I promised you at the beginning, but I've I've just got maybe two or three quick questions to ask at the end. Um, one that we always ask everybody is, um, you know, you've obviously had a lot of success in your career. What is the main contributing factor to your success? Do you think it's um, do you think it's hard work? Do you think it's luck, or do you think it's talent? If you had to pick one of the three, which one would you go for? It's definitely not luck. Right. It's not talent because there are talented people around who don't get into what what they deserve. Obviously, you need talent. Hard work, yes, obviously, hard work. I'd actually say, though, my faith in God because I just think believing in a God I believe loves me and can help me with challenges, dealing with myself and trying to achieve the possible sometimes helps me to then have a go at achieving the impossible and do the hard work that it takes to do it. And, you know, if things do flop, also believing enough that he loves me for that not to kind of go into a self-destructive kind of thing, if you know what I mean, but to get up again and just to keep running. Yeah, resilience. I mean, that's that's a common thing that I think everybody's. You know, you have you have your setbacks, but how do, how do you come back from those setbacks? Mm, yeah, Obviously your your faith has helped you in that respect. Um, and then what once kind of related question is, you know, if you if you hadn't have made it as a as a pianist as a musician, what other career do you think you could have been doing now? I think acting. Acting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, some form of writing, whether that would have looked like journalism or creative writing. I really enjoy working on film sets, actually. Um, maybe something in the film industry. Um, yeah. Okay. And where can people find out a bit more about you? Where can they see you perform over the next few months? Yeah, so I would hit my website for this performances or finding out more about me, which is BeatriceNicholas.com. That is Nicholas, N-I-C-H-O-L-E-S. Or you can put at Beatrice Nicholas. <laughs> or just put my name into Google. And are there, are there any particular gigs that you would like people to, uh, that you'd like people to know about? Yeah, sure. So next Saturday, next Saturday I'm playing in Norwich at the Antiros Foundation. They've got a beautiful Tudor room with a beautiful grand piano and I'm playing great program um Tchaikovsky 
um, Kafkian version of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, Mozart, Chopin, um, that'd be lovely. What else is happening? I'm also doing some stuff in London um, with a cellist um, on some schools that I've written that he's playing with, with me. Um, also going to France, if anyone lives in France who's <laughs> listening to this. I am doing um, three children's concerts, actually. Adults can come, but they're family concerts, but they're aimed at children. Um, three children's concerts in Byrits. So if you like surfing, you have children, you live in France, you might want to come too. Excellent, excellent. I had a look at the, um, the listenership uh, numbers the other day, and we have people in the U.S., I think in Australia. I don't think we have anybody in France, but uh, uh, not too late. <laughs> that may change after this. After this Great show, country. <laughs> spread the word. Spread the word. Yeah. But um, <laughs> that's been amazing. Thank you so much for your time uh, today, Beatrice. Uh, it's been really fascinating finding out about your your journey in the classical music Aww. world. Thank you for listening. No problem, and all the best to you in the future. Yes, thank you so much, Tunde. Well, that was fascinating. Thanks so much to Beatrice. I'm sure for some of you, the classical music world will be largely unknown, so I hope Beatrice gave you some insight into that world. Check us out, as always, on the on the socials, uh, How I Crushed It, and catch you on the next show. <laughs>